Welcome to Study Buddy, meditation philosophy for the heart of your practice. This is a live online discussion of ancient yogic texts amongst meditation practitioners in the Shambhavananda yoga tradition. My name is Acharya Satyam, a resident teacher at Konalani Yoga Ashram in Hawaii, and I welcome you with love and respect. In the coming season, um, one of our new new goals is to work with the sutras a little bit on our own between classes and to allow that self-study time to inform our discussion. Our discussions are amazing and they're really, a, they, they're, they're, they're sort of the heartbeat of this class, but there's only really so much insight all of us can have when it's the first time we're seeing a sutra you know, and we're just encountering it. And, and it's like that level of insight is, is important. It's a stepping stone, but there's so much more available. The minute we take that sutra sort of into our life a little bit and let it um, awaken um, our practice. And so just a couple of concepts. Sorry, I'm going to have to cover you up for a second um, about this. One is that there's a there's a yoga sutra actually about this concept. It's called Swadhyaya, and it means self-study. Um, and self-study or self-inquiry is said to bring about understanding of your true nature. And so it's so fascinating that 2,000 years ago, Patanjali went out of his way to make this one of the niyamas, meaning one of the sort of fundamental aspects of how a yogi conducts themselves um, because later science would go on to say that self-study is where most of the learning occurs in any discipline um, and a part of that is also reflected in just that age-old saying the best fertilizer is a farmer's footsteps meaning if you're just carrying that thing with you if you're just in the garden things are going to be fruitful. You don't have to unpack every word of Sanskrit. You don't even have to look at it that often, but if it's just with you. And so this little concept, the sort of the pocket sutra thing that we're doing, um, which, yeah, I know I called it something different last week, but I made a logo and it's right there. It's called the pocket sutra. Yeah, I know the palm was pretty cool too, but I just wanted to, I was just like, oh, it's all about it being in your pocket. And I thought it was catchy, and then this drawing came together. It's pretty good. So, pocket sutra, and the idea, you know, you keep in your pocket, and um, there's a whole like movement right now. You've probably heard about it, about just being like offline and creative, and being able to work with like pen and paper again. Um, there's like all these like cell, these journals and, and everything that's like that's like their research has shown how beneficial it can be. So this is sort of our version. And so my goal is to introduce new, new sutras to you to have the initial discussion together, then to revisit it in the next class, utilizing whatever insight you came to, you know, and we'll see it's loose um, tonight, you know, we'll see how it goes. It's like the first time we're sort of revisiting this. Um, but I think as it goes on, this could, in my opinion, be the key to achieving, you know, Babaji's vision of us. Uh, making the study of philosophy an aid to our practice. So um, with that said, uh, any questions or comments, by the way, before we sort of jump into just sort of revisiting 
where we left off last time. And it's totally cool if you weren't here last time. We're just going to talk a little bit, and there's new material, and you're here for that. All right. So the last Pocket Sutra <laughs> uh, breakdown, there's, there's two fundamental sort of quotes. Um, this was the actual sutra. Veda tirakskare sargantara karmatvam. Yogi drives away difference, differentiated perception, and thereby enters into a new world of consciousness, consciousness that is actually focused on our true nature. So as we're able to drive away difference, our true nature comes to us, comes into view. And this concept of driving away um, was the, the first sort of part one of what we were carrying around with us for the week. Um, you know, did you find that, how did you interpret this concept of driving away? Uh, in the sutra, Lakshmanju said, oh, it's sort of like ignoring something at a mental level. And I was like, ignoring, is that a word you would use? Or, or do you interpret it differently? Or maybe I was interested in ignoring actually. I was like, oh, there is an element of ignoring in surrender. In any case, um, if anybody wants to chime in, we can start there. Um, we don't we don't have to spend too long. I see Bob's got his hand up. Yeah, Bob, how do you interpret driving away? All right. I wrote, um, well, I don't look at it as driving away assumes that there is somebody there to drive away something else. And I, I feel like in the witness state, it's more a matter of if you're in the witness state, the things that are, that you <laughs> would, I guess, call driving away, the things you would want to drive away, uh, if you're truly in the witness state, you see those things from a very detached place as if you're looking down on them and um, they have no effect on you. So um, putting yourself into a state of being detached enough and being uh, a witness of your emotions and the things that your mind is doing, that is uh, how I experience it rather than trying to take a sword and slash and burn things away. Oh, I don't hear you. Thanks. Sorry about that. I encountered a really similar experience where I was like, I don't, this driving away does make me feel like I'm rejecting and, and pushing and and I think you really hit the nail on the head with the witness. Uh, it, it's almost like it, it does the work for you. Our work is to stay connected there and allow the witness to almost like how Rudy says, what you don't need just sort of falls through. You don't have to like push it away. It just falls through. Um, so yeah, I had a very similar experience. I found that driving was quite the word I would use, but nonetheless, you know, and I think this sometimes when we see how other teachers, because Swami Lakshmanju, 
amazing teacher, Babaji, met him, Paul Reps. He was a mentor of Paul Reps. He's definitely in our, oh, wow, Bob, you, I did not know you met Lakshman Jew. Wow. He's, I hear he's really tall. He was in bed when I met him, but he uh, sat up when, um, when Baba mentioned Paul Reps. He sat up and his eyes got really big. But, wow. uh, he was an amazing man. And in truth, I felt like there was electricity in the room and it felt like uh, he was a very amazing man. I was very grateful to meet him. Yeah. And, and so we sometimes hearing how another teacher or perhaps another lineage, so to speak, would describe these concepts actually helps you start to understand how you understand the concept that Rudy did call it surrender, that that was a unique term, that we don't encounter that term a lot in the sutras that that was something he like brought to us i tell you like i've come to appreciate the teachings from our lineage you know even more just by seeing how hard it is and how many generations of yogis have tried to describe this concept you know that rudy for example encapsulated as surrender where you consciously release something but it's not quite like pushing it away and it's not quite like giving up etc so thanks bob for kicking off that conversation about the driving way any other comments on that sure property thanks um i was thinking it's kind of like redirecting okay so you're not pushing away <clears throat> driving away all of the stuff that you don't want to identify with you're just identifying with so you're redirecting to identify with, you know, the inner self, I guess, or mm -hmm. your heart or whatever. It's just another way of saying it. But I'm betting that there's another sutra that says just that. Like, it's, it feels like a lot of the sutras are telling us to do the same thing. And they just say it in a slightly different way every time. But anyway, so that was just my, those are all my thoughts. There you go. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that does come up. I remember when Babaji heard that we were offering a level three meditation teacher training. He was like, a thousand ways to surrender. You know, he was just like, oh, like another training teaching this thing. But it seems to be the way it is. It's like our true nature is right, seems to be right in front of us. It's not really about us finding it it's it just ah oh, here you know keep re can we look at it you know in this way and that way and it just keeps clicking in little ways so yeah redirecting redirecting just sort of working with that for a moment oh thanks yeah redirecting i what i love about that and we'll go to usha right after this is that it it keeps it sort of keeps the energy flowing where i don't get caught in accepting and rejecting it's sort of like it's almost like how babaji often says in kung fu like someone might throw a punch and you redirect the energy instead of trying to stop it you know it's almost like there's energy flowing and it's really skillful to be able to redirect it it requires a lot of presence and and so that anyway that's where it sort of landed for me about like how that felt internally so that's a really helpful word for me
Usha, do you like to comment on that or a new direction? Um, I did my pocket book. <laughs> I, um, and I was book. just looking at my, I was looking at my notes and at the time, and I was achieving it by focusing on what is constant being awareness, just focusing on our awareness, the thing that is always constant, always with us, and that's our awareness. And then I also remembered, and it was helpful at the time, of uh, a statement that the only thing that transmigrates is our mind. So that was another thing that was helpful is that I am not the mind. The mind is what take anyway. So that was another one. And um, those are the things that I had my my little notes. Mm -hmm. But that thought of awareness being what is constant. Mm -hmm. So the feeling of difference is is the feeling of it's almost like you can, you, it's hard to know where the self is and what difference is and all that is, but you can, are you saying you can sort of feel that there's a part of you that's more constant, part of you that's steadier than these external experiences, is that what, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, um, so my experiences is I was doing something I, um, that I always do, walking my dog on the day on a day, and one day I feel one way, the one day I feel another way because of my emotions, my mind, or whatever is going on. But there is always that me that's always there. Mm. And so just that, you know, that was helpful for me to come back to like saying that there's me or this awareness or whatever that's always there. And these other things are not, they're just, they're not constant. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way for me to pull myself back. It feels good. Yeah, I'm just sort of feeling inside for like how to, feeling for that, that constant place. And I definitely it's just feel like, like the, the, yeah. It's a thing that I guess I got it from the, the part of during waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, there's always the one mm. thing that threads through. And I think where this is where that all came from inside of me. That's where this feeling came from inside of me. There's that part of you that's always there. Yes. 
So part of driving away difference is really like Bob said, not so much about pushing anything away, but rather like re-identifying with the most constant part of us, which might be called the witness, you know, the most, you know, the steadier part you said, the part that you can identify with day after day and uh, the heart, the breath, you know, these parts of us that are just always there. Thanks, Usha. Yogita. Hi, I am. I am. Um, I like to describe. I did a free ride on it. I like describing surrender as driving away uh, differentiated um, perceptions. It's like my breath is pushing my very thoughts and perceptions out so I can experience the bliss and joy beyond these perceptions. And I also um, had a visualization of me driving up to um, a Shoshone and leaving all the tensions behind in the creek. And then when I go back, I had a total different perception. <laughs> nice. Thanks, Yogita. Just feeling with that, sort of that actual practice that you just described, that idea of the breath doing the work for us, of driving away this difference. Yeah, Babaji's recently been teaching a lot about how, how we can better utilize our exhale. Um, on the exhale, let, really letting that expansion occur, you know, keeping our attention in the heart, but really feeling. And that, that's sort of where I would naturally feel that, that driving way of difference with the breath is letting the breath just sort of like expand us well beyond any tension or limitation. Thank you. Any last comments or questions on the last portion before we move into some new material? Awesome. All right, so um, our focal point for this week, we will still end with the, uh, with the 20 minutes of meditation, but our meditation is gonna be sort of driven by the new material for the week. So I wanna introduce, whoop, over here, I wanna introduce that, um, work with it a little bit together, see if any comments or questions come up and then, and then move into a practice that's based on it. So it's the second half of the same sutra uh, but we're given a very unique focal point, and it's really powerful and really helpful and really effective. Um, I'm going to spotlight myself just for a moment, and I will do my best to remember to unspotlight when we're discussing, but just so you can see in case the text is small on your screen. And the first portion is this, centered around something that's called triple awareness. Uh, we'll read it together in a moment, but... You know, by default, we know that in the yogic tradition, our 
awareness is, is described as dualistic, right? We've all heard that term occasionally or maybe a lot. Dualistic means two, sort of. It, it means, it, and it's not saying that like, oh, that means you see two things. It means you're, you're caught between two things constantly. When you're in the state of dualism, it's like you always have a situation, but you wish it was different in this certain way to be happy, you know, or you're, you're here and you sort of wish you were there. Uh, we're either pushing or pulling in any situation that we're in. And so we find ourselves caught in this constant state, caught between these two realities, never really being able to drink in the contentment that's right under our nose, you know, right in our heart. And so triple awareness doesn't mean, well, on the surface, it mean, you know, triple meaning three doesn't mean, oh, there's more things to focus on, but this idea of triple awareness actually attempts to unify the two things to get us out of this state of accepting and rejecting, jumping like a grasshopper, you know, through all through our life and tries to help bridge those two experiences. And so this third center, as it's called, that was we'll read in a moment, isn't really its own thing, but it exists to unite the feeling of separation that causes us to suffer. And so um, that becomes like the focal point for our work to drive away differentiation and to enter into a new world of God consciousness, as it's called. Um, so let's look at the text. Um, Pujari, it's great to have you here. Would you mind reading this for us? With pleasure. Thanks. When you fix your awareness, not only in two, but in three, you're carried to God consciousness and you become one with Svachanda. Svachanda Tantra. What is the meaning of triple awareness? The verse tells us there must be triple awareness, not just awareness of two. Awareness of two is the awareness of two actions, such as inhaling and exhaling. Triple awareness includes the junction, the gap between any two actions, between inhaling and exhaling, and between exhaling and inhaling. It is the junction between one step and another step between one thought and another thought, between one sensation and another sensation, etc. When you are aware of the three centers, then you are carried to Svachanda, to God consciousness. Well read, Bujari, thanks. And take your time with that, everybody. You're sort of rescanning. such a practical moment in the sutras we're given a really specific practice that really aligns so well with our work so it's i'm a, it's a little exciting don't get these gems every time all right so you heard the intro you see you're now you're seeing the sutra there's a little more to go but i want to pause here for a moment this spark anyone, uh, any comments or questions from anyone? Do you actively, yeah, Pujari, you can go ahead. It's our precious Hamsa, that's what Baba was teaching a couple right. Monday nights ago. Yeah, 
it's yeah which was even more practice. fitting we were about i was about to teach this last thursday but then we were sick and i was like he's teaching the thing we're doing thursday how does he do this um but yeah so is this a part of your practice for hamsa do you focus on the pause oh i just love it it's just my favorite when i'm not you know yeah <laughs> i can calm myself down enough it's it's the best and nichinanda and song of the self he goes to great length about it as well you know uh, i didn't know that i'd like to yeah i'd like to see that yeah that's my memory of it anyway <laughs> oh cool yeah since reading this and getting the practice from babaji which is always the spark that ignites it um the pause has become very powerful actually um in my own practice but i wanted to see where it's landing for you all um are there any ways that you pause during your day are there any times that you know do you take time to pause yeah not to johnny and i'm not on spotlight sorry about that i forgot i um i just got a big smile when reading it i think one of my favorite things actually in practicing is transitions and transitions in dance um, was described to me like when I very first started learning about transitions. Um, it's like two doorknobs. And at one point you have to let go of the doorknob in order to like latch on to this other doorknob. But in order to let go, there's this space of like fear and all the things like wondering and and so but i love i love it it's a very artistic way of looking at transitions through your day i mean it's always in transitioning from something happened you get in your car and you go to somewhere else and that's then where your mind starts going and um having mantra and all of that is so helpful um but for me the best is when it's not really three anymore that it's just kind of one and it kind of like i don't know i'm kind of doing this like infinity symbol but that it it it's it's so seamless and so that there's so many multiple points along this line between two and with a third in the middle yeah, absolutely. You bring up a good point. Sometimes the transition um, feel it, it feels fearful. You feel like you're going to lose something. You have to let go of something, and you don't have the next thing in sight. Um, and then other times, it could be very mundane. The space of a transition could just be like driving, and your mind just wanders because you're not putting it on anything. Um, and so that this middle space has a whole range of of experience. You know, uh, the way that we relate to that space in between, you know, uh, when we when our mind can latch on to to an experience. And I think that'd be a great thing to explore this week. You know, how are you approaching figuratively all of us, you uh, a transit, the transitional spaces of your day, the physical ones, as they say in the sutra, or even the the more, you know, the transitional spaces between thoughts is that 
real? You know, uh, have, have you experienced that kind of space in your day? Like actually seeing a thought end and not going into the next one so fast? Yeah, I think this is good. This is sort of a good focal point for us. Yeah, Anju. Something about the word gap struck me differently than when we've looked at this kind of idea of transitions before, and I'm not sure why. And it's kind of more of a mundane kind of um, sensation, I guess. But it just was sort of this like awareness that the richness of being a human being really comes from the gap. It's the stuff that happens between that really gives us like the richness and the meaning of, of being. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That is definitely the, the feeling I have uh, in the space between the breath it really it establishes this richness is just such a perfect word. I'm so glad you brought that into the discussion. It establishes like a baseline of richness, you know, that as you inhale or exhale after that point, after that still point, it remains rich. Yeah, and if we rush through those transitional spaces, how everything feels so superfluous. No matter what the next thing is, we're just on to the next thing. How that space between defines the experience of the thing we're going towards. So thanks, Anju, that was really helpful. Yogita. I have been doing the hamsaw a lot and trying to focus on the space. And, and one thing I've experienced is a turnaround. It's like the breath goes in and it turns around and goes out. And as it does that, it goes deeper into the chakras. And, and it's kind of like digging up stuff and throwing it out and going deeper. That's just what I've been experiencing. <laughs> nice. That turnaround reminds me of, wasn't it Radharani's spiral diagram? Yeah, how, you know, we, we feel like we're just always, yeah, okay, Bob, that's thumbs up. How it, it just keeps going deeper. It appears like it's going up and down like a spiral would, but if you follow that spiral, it's actually going deeper each time. So it's, well, hopefully we can experience that for ourselves when we're sitting later. And that's that, that moment between the breaths is where you can feel that there is, it is going somewhere. It's going deeper. You can, you can actually feel the gravity of it. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's gonna be a very fruitful week or, or two actually till we meet again. Uh, this has just been so valuable. Um, should we go on to another quote or is there any last comments on this one? Oh, okay, Kara. Um, I actually was 
taken aback by the word triple and I work with numbers and I know that three is a pretty significant number. Um, and I also immediately thought about the symbolism of the third eye. And that's just kind of what I was getting from the quote was opening up the third eye. Yes, uh, a practical way that, that I sort of have, have worked with that, you know, that feels in alignment with, with what I've been taught is that um, it's like what you see with your eyes is duality, you know, but what you see with your third eye is, is a feeling of unity within that duality. Like you can see the room that you're in, but when you soften your gaze a little bit, almost like the Shambhavi mudra, and you sort of start to see with a little bit of detachment, it allows you to feel that, that ability to interact with your world, not so one-on-one -on -one with the senses, but a little bit removed. Um, so I think the third eye is a great way, you know, to approach this, this space, really. It's a space um, of awareness that, that we can see from, learn to see from. Thanks, Kara. Anyone else before you move on? Sure, Pujari. I just had a question about um, this Vachanda Tantra. I don't think I've ever heard of it before. Hmm. Where did it come from? And it's very interesting the way it's written. Yeah, I. To my understanding, it's a text that precedes the sutras by at least one to 2,000 years. I actually feel like I just encountered it for the first time as I was reading through Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and he mentions a couple of them. But um, it's, it's oddly challenging to pinpoint some of these texts to get a good chronology. In fact, if anybody out there wants to put a little chronology together, timeline for us all, because they, they continually reference these texts. The Malini Vijaya Tantra comes up a ton. Uh, I just read in Zen Flesh and Bones like that, where that one comes in. So maybe we can start to put together a little timeline for each other. And if anybody's really into that, take the lead. Did you write this paragraph up? Uh, this, is from, this is from the Shiva Sutras. So the top part here is quoted directly in the sutras. And then this is Lakshmanju's commentary based on Shemaraja's original commentary. So none of this is me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I put the slide together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. so let's look at one more part of the quote. Um, because I think it's pretty, well, it's, it's, it's powerful to say the least. Let's see what y'all think of this before we meditate. Um, Anandama, how's it going? Would you like to read this one for us? And I can make it bigger if it's hard to read. Okay. okay. As a yogi becomes one with Svachananda, with Bhairavanatha, 
then differentiated perceptions do not exist. In another verse, in the same Tantra, we are told, the yogi becomes so great, they terrify Brahma, Vishnu, and Indra, the Siddhas, Daichas, and those who rule the great deities, Garuda, etc. They cause them to be fearful, or if they are satisfied with them, they drive fear away from them. They are the bestower of boons and curses. Even the Lord of death cannot stand before them. By the power of their will, they can level great mountains. It's always an interesting moment when in the Gita, this comes up, you know, when they talk about this power inside of us is just unfathomable, you know, um, and that they, when they say like, you could terrify Brahma or Vishnu with this power, you're just like, what do you mean? Like, that's just so far beyond my comprehension, but it comes up a lot in the Ramayana. Um, there are gurus there are you know uh, great practitioners that rise to these unprecedented levels of, of awareness and there's really no limit just because they have a human form it, i'm not saying i understand it but i am saying it's referenced in a, a lot of texts uh, of the yogic tradition including the ones that we chant every day for my interpretation I don't think we're trying to level literal mountains. You know, I think we're trying to level mountains of karma. You know, I don't think we're trying to scare a deity. I don't think any of us that doesn't really what it's just not where we're at. But we but we should know that our capacity as yogis is far beyond our our comprehension that we we should have no limits to what we think is possible through our practice. And that's where I, that's where this came to me. It might come to you differently. But Swami Rajananda is pretty clear that, you know, this is a, well, two things. One, there's a strength that we are building as yogis, that there is a strength that accumulates that allows us to consume more and more of our karma and two that the power we're tapping into is as he described it the most powerful force in the universe and he i don't think he meant that metaphorically i really don't I think it was very literal and so here's just an example of what's possible in this space between our breaths between our thoughts this space of stillness this space of awareness. Any questions or comments? Sure, Bob. Yeah, I have been aware of several times, maybe in the last few, few years where um, I'm in meditation and something starts to open up and 
it literally is terrifying. Um, I don't know why I don't. It's not an image I see. It's not a something I perceive. It's just something opens up and there's just the briefest instant of terror and then it's gone. And then I'm wondering, what was that? It's like seeing the blue pearl. It's there and then it's gone and has no uh, rhyme or reason as far as I can tell. But it's the same thing with these moments of terror. And it, it, uh, but I have learned or I've trained myself to um, not let them stop me. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of looking forward to the next moment of terror to see how well I handle it. Um, I'll let you know. <laughs> oh, I can't hear you. Sorry, I wish you the best <laughs> on that journey. But I, you know, I think what you bring up is, is a, it, it's just a, it's that hero's journey. It's the spiritual warrior. It's that this is real, uh, that you're, we really are excavating um, parts of ourself. This isn't a superficial practice. You know, as Babaji says, one of the most, he said recently, one of the reasons the ashrams are so valuable is because they allow people to come to a place to do a real and powerful practice in a safe, supportive environment, you know, that we really are, as a sangha, creating that space for each other to do real excavating, you know, not just smooth the surface. Thanks. So we're going to pause um, there. Time is tricky. Uh, we're going to pause there. And again, uh, we've got this all laid out in this week's Pocket Sutra. Um, this quote, plus another one, I have a quote from Babaji uh, about that talks about this over here too. And we'll be back in two weeks to discuss that. Um, but let's meditate right now and really work with this space between our breaths because I think it's, it's such a fruitful space of our awareness. Feel free to adjust your seat, of course. But I want to note something in this last verse. When you are aware of the three centers, it says you are carried to God consciousness. Carried there. So I want you to imagine right now that you're sitting up and you're sitting still. But as Babaji describes it, you know, rock forward and rock back a little until you find that, that moment of balance where you, you should feel a little bit lighter. Lighter, almost as if through this stillness, you were being held or carried. That you aren't doing all the work of stillness. You're doing your part, but that stillness, real stillness, is a part of your true nature. This lightness. 
and similar with our breath flow. We start by inhaling and exhaling smoothly and evenly. And this is, this takes a physical effort. Try to make the effort very minimal, of course, but it's there. Between the breaths, we can feel something lighter than our effort. You don't have to hold on to it as we've been taught many times. You let it come and you observe it. can swallow and then allow the next breath to be drawn effortlessly towards the heart with your inhale. And then with your exhale, assimilate it. The inhale draws in. And as you exhale, it doesn't just flow back out. That energy shines. These are two valuable aspects of our practice, the way we use our inhale and our exhale. And there's a moment in between each breath that can inform this work. You can feel that pause between each aspect of your breath. It will make your work within the breath more effective.
the thoughts arise, but they can't match the dissolving power of that pause between the breath. It is the great leveler of thoughts, of distractions. Feel how the pause pinpoints your awareness in the heart. It creates a distilled drishti. In the Vigyana Bhairava, we're instructed to feel for the two pauses, the pause at the base and the pause at the crown. And you can allow your awareness as you inhale to draw down along the front of the body, that pause at the navel. And as you exhale, you can allow the awareness to wrap and draw up the spine to the pause of the crown. You don't have to push or pull. The pause does all the work. 
feel that space of the pause waiting for you throughout the whole inhale, that pause waiting in the navel. And then feel the energy drawing up the spine effortlessly, buoyantly to its destination, to its home, and that pause at the crown. By the power of their practice, this yogi can level great mountains. As your energy flows down the front to the navel with that effortless effort of the inhale, and then wraps around the base up the spine to the crown with your 
effortless, buoyant exhale, you are leveling mountains of karma like water, flowing through them, over them endlessly, wearing them away. By just being in your flow, by just putting your vital force into this pathway. We don't have to do any battle, but we do have to focus our energy. Letting the eyes slowly open. And just taking stock of 
honestly the power that you may feel inside. The vitality might be a better word for it as it's really just for your growth, you know. And the relationship that those pauses had to your experience. So with that, we'll conclude. Um, I did have one little tidbit to add. Um, we've been printing hours on colorful paper, our pocket sutra, because it's just, well, we had this idea, it's sort of fun to, um, when you're done with them, what do you do? What do you do with them when you're done? Are you going to stitch them all together and make a big book? You know, maybe that's a pretty cool idea. Or you could, yeah, here you go. or you could unfold it. Fold one little part up here, do that little triangle thing that they do. And then here, I'll just put it on here. And then this triangle, and then you go in and then around and then back and a swan. You could make it into a swan, a crane. And as we know in the Japanese tradition, you fold a thousand paper cranes in order to uh, attain something. And uh, on, a lot of times it's done for, to help someone's health, but it's actually done in, in any discipline to, to attain because we all know it takes time. Imagine if you had a thousand of these swans strung up and that represented a thousand sutras that you worked on more or less or portions, I don't know. I did the math. If we did one a week, that would take 20 years. So I'm going to shoot for a hundred. I'm going to go over a hundred. But anyway, so that was just an idea. If you wanted to start printing it on colorful paper, what you could do with it afterwards. That was the surprise you'll get today. I hope it lived up to the expectations. All right, everyone. Thank you for your time and attention. Namaste. Now you're going to have to have a craft lesson on how to make them. <laughs> true. I was going to do a video and I realized there are so many great YouTube videos better than what I would do. So just type it in how to fold a cream. Sitaram, Jay Jay Sri Ram Sitaram.